You watch these robots just kind of roll across the, the top of this vast warehouse, and, and it's, it's like watching this amazing kind of silent ballet. So robotics has the potential to make data collection much more straightforward, more easy, more scalable. They are increasingly being deployed on our streets and our sidewalks. You've seen the R2-D2. It looks almost exactly like that. Welcome to Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. I'm Brian O'Keefe, deputy editor of Fortune. And I'm Michal Evram, senior writer at Fortune. What are we doing today, Brian? Today, we're going to talk about robots. <laughs> How do you like my robot voice? I, I loved it. It was uh, not creepy at all. Do you think robots still talk like that in 2020? You know, I wish they did, but robots aren't really taking off in the way that I think any of us imagined they would, or at least science fiction movies imagined they would. Well, I think robots are taking off, but maybe not in the way that science fiction movies imagined. So let me give you an example. We spoke with a man named Herman Gomez. He oversees the housekeeping department. It's actually called the Environmental Services Department at a hospital in Los Angeles called Adventist Health White Memorial. But his housekeeping team also includes seven robots made by a company called Xenex. Uh, if you know the, the Star Wars movie and you've seen the R2-D2, it looks almost exactly like that. After the room has been cleaned by the housekeeper, we bring in the Xenix robot or the UV light disinfection robot. And then we close the door, press the start button from outside of the room, it's done remotely, and then the robot goes to work. And what it does, it emits a UV light all throughout the room and uh, it's disinfecting the room. You will see them being deployed all throughout the day, 24 hours a day. Because we have so many isolation rooms, we're constantly using them. Not only that, but we make it part of our cleaning process in the pharmacy. So we use it in the pharmacy at the end of the day to clean the IV clean room, which is supposed to be one of the cleanest areas in the hospital because that's where they mix hazardous medication. So we use it as part of our cleaning in there. We use it part of our cleaning in the surgery area. So after all of the surgeries have been completed for the day, our EVS professionals go in there to clean or terminally clean the room. And then they also deploy the Xenix UV light disinfection robot to the room just to make sure that everything has been disinfected completely, not only by the housekeeper who has been trained and uses the proper chemicals, but also the Xenix robot, just like a second level of disinfection So what do you think, Michal? Using housekeepers plus robots to clean? Is that overkill? Well, I can relate. I mean, I'm one of those people who cleans the house before the housekeeper comes. So, you know, you can never be too clean, right? Are you the robot or are you the humans before the robot? I think I'm the humans. I mean, sometimes I clean after too. I don't know. You know, it, it seems like we're always talking about the compliment that that robots and AI are a complement to humans versus taking over their jobs. And I think in some cases, they're clearly taking over jobs. But this is maybe an example where it is sort of this nice compliment that some tasks robots are just better at, right? Yeah. And the hospital actually brought these robots in a few years ago before the pandemic. But there are plenty of examples of places that are starting to use robots just in the past few months 
as cleaning and sterilizing has become more of a priority. Uh, the San Antonio airport is using robots and the Carolina Panthers, the NFL team, is using robots to clean their facilities. And this gets to a big question that we wanted to explore here today. Is the pandemic accelerating the adoption of robots? And our colleague Jeremy Kahn, a senior writer at Fortune, has been reporting on that very question. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. Can we hear your robot voice? Oh, I do not do a robot voice. <laughs> Jeremy does not do robots. He yeah. only writes about them. I'm glad it's a podcast. I don't have to do a robot dance. That would be even worse. No, but Brian's doing it right now from his apartment. All right, so let's get into what we want to talk about today. So, Jeremy, how has the pandemic accelerated the adoption of robots? I think the pandemic has, has really caused people to think about ways that they could automate all kinds of things. I mean, it's really sped up digital transformation, and, and robots are part of that. One of the ways in which you know, we've seen the pandemic really uh, increase demand for robots has actually been the whole area of cleaning. You know, everyone's very concerned about hygiene right now. They, you know, it's very important for customers in, in public facing areas to see that things are being cleaned. And that's led a lot of companies um, to start using cleaning robots. And now cleaning robots have been around for a while, but I think a lot of companies thought they were a sort of needless expense. I think the pandemic has kind of changed that logic. And you've seen a lot of companies, at least according to the, the robot manufacturers, uh, you know, a lot of businesses are, are now eager to, to buy these cleaning robots. Personally, I'm still a little bit uncomfortable and just unaccustomed to, to seeing robots doing tasks that humans usually do. Like if I walked into a grocery store and saw a robot cleaning the floor, I'd be like, you know, where are the people? <laughs> it's just, it's odd. Um, do you think that now that they're being used more and more, like in retailers, for example, is that going to finally make some of us who are still uncomfortable with that a little bit more comfortable seeing robots doing all sorts of things? You're right. I think as we have uh, more robots uh, and encounter them more in our daily lives, uh, we'll become more accustomed to them. And, you know, cleaning robots are kind of the, the gateway drug of robotics that um, you get used to seeing this thing, you know, in your house, whether it's a Roomba or in the store, a much larger uh, floor washing robot. And then you just kind of say, oh, yeah, it's, it's, you get used to it. It's there. And I think that's probably true for other kinds of robots, too. So, so once you start seeing these things, I think people get much more accustomed to them. Jeremy, what are we learning about what robots can do and can't do during the pandemic. So I read about a company called Akato. That's a, a British grocery store chain, and they only do online delivery. And one of their sort of secrets to their success has been that they have some of the most automated warehouses in the entire world. And those warehouses work, um, they're almost completely manned by robots. They have this giant metal stack that's four stories high. It takes up the entire warehouse. And they have over a thousand of these robots. And you, you come in and if you stand on the top of this grid, uh, you watch these robots just kind of roll across the, the top of this vast warehouse. And, and it's, it's like watching this amazing kind of silent ballet. The grid is full of uh, plastic cartons. Each carton has a different kind of grocery item in it. And they'll stop over a, a location. And the robots are about the size of an office copy machine, so decent size. They will drop from their belly uh, these kind of grappling hooks that descend into the stack. And they grab the plastic uh, bin and, and pull it up into the belly of the robot. Then the robot will take it somewhere where it, it's, it's actually called a, uh, a packing tunnel. And then uh, from there, they are uh, assembled into each customer's order. One problem Akato had, however, uh, is that 
this grid is actually not very flexible. And so during the pandemic, when they saw this huge spike in demand, um, they had no way to easily meet that demand because the grid takes several years to build and then it takes months to bring in all the groceries that fill the grid. They have to order these robots from a supplier. They, it takes them several months to arrive. So when they saw this huge spike in demand, um, they, they didn't have an easy way to respond. And some of their competitors who operate a system that's much more based on human labor found that they could respond much more quickly because they could just simply hire more workers. And Akado didn't have that sort of flexibility because of uh, their dependence on, on the robotic system. Jeremy, is there capital flooding into the robot companies? I mean, is this, this is the moment they've been waiting for for 20 years, you know, a, a global need for robots to fill tasks and... You know, we've had people developing robot technology for so long. Are they able to to meet the moment? Uh, there's definitely money flowing into the sector. I mean, if you look at the venture capital figures uh, for robotics companies, they have have been going up, and there have been a number of significant funding rounds for robotics companies in the last few months. And if you talk to the companies, they claim their revenue has never been higher. So there's they're definitely making more sales of these robots. In terms of of the robotics companies' actual ability to meet the demand for the machines, that's been more of a problem. And a number of the robotics companies I talked to said, you know, they've had problems with getting spare parts and they've had problems um, ramping up enough to deliver all the robots that their customers want. I think that's going to probably be a temporary problem and uh, they will be able to kind of meet this demand. And then I think the whole sector, you see more companies sort of going into robotics or trying to create robots. You mentioned floor cleaning robots being sort of the gateway drug to, I'm guessing the next logical step is total world domination by our robotic overlords. But on a more serious note, I mean, the the big question here, and I think the big concern, which, which has been a concern for a long time, is what does this do to jobs? And especially at a time where we're looking at significant job losses kind of across the board in a variety of sectors. How should we be thinking about this? People don't like to talk about the, the job uh, part of this equation, but I think it's definitely true that some of these robots eliminate jobs and some of them are designed to eliminate jobs. I mean, it's one of the, the cleaning robots in a way, you know, one of the ways that they companies that make them justify the cost is that over time they cost less than it would cost to have a cleaning company in there you know, every every night um, for years. Uh, I think during the pandemic, like there's been such a demand for cleaning that it hasn't actually resulted in too many job losses. So um, what's happened is, you know, they've just redeployed the cleaners like to do those high touch areas that the robots can't really do. So instead of having the humans running the doing the floor cleaning, you know, they, they have the humans doing the, the fittings in the bathroom or the, the handles on the doors and the railings, and they just let the robot do the floors. But I think in the future, it might be the case that they don't need as many cleaners, and then those people will lose their jobs. Okay, so I interviewed a woman who created a robot that really and truly does a job nobody wants. Mariana Matis is the co-founder and CEO of Biobot. And listen to this. I think you'll see exactly what I mean. What we do is we look at data that is collected in wastewater because when, when we use the toilet, actually our pee and poo makes it all the way there to the wastewater pipes. And it is full of information about our health, about our well-being, um, you know, think about 
the things that we ate, the medicine that we took last night, any infection that we may have right now going on, all of that data makes it into our waste. And then when we're flushing the toilet, we're sending away that information to the wastewater infrastructure. At Biobot, what we do is we collect that information. We collect wastewater samples, we analyze it with techniques we have in the lab, and then we show that data to people making decisions about how to keep our communities safe. It turns out that pee and poo is really instrumental in helping us to spot COVID outbreaks before they happen. So Mariana actually told me that their technology is able to spot COVID outbreaks about seven days before cases begin to show up in clinics, which is pretty amazing. So this is starting to roll out across different communities, universities, um, schools, and it can be really impactful in helping with reopening plans because it basically works as an early warning system, an early detection system that gives uh, different communities an opportunity to basically shut things down if they need to before an outbreak happens and to be a lot more intentional about it using data so they know exactly where the outbreaks are coming from. That is really incredible. I mean, we leave a lot of information behind if you know what I'm saying, when we uh, leave our waste behind. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't want it to go to waste, right, Brian? Exactly. But where do the robots come in? I, I asked her that exact question. So robotics has the potential to make that data collection piece much more straightforward, more easy, more scalable. So we have been pioneering the development of robots that you can deploy in wastewater, in the sewer, basically in manholes across communities. And that can do the dirty work for us, where we don't have to be sending a person to open that sewer manhole and get us a sample, but actually you can just automate the process. And eventually those robots will be also testing for things in real time to give us you know, that information literally as it's being produced from our bodies. How big are these robots and what do they look like? I mean, there's like swimming through poop. On the outside, they look just like a pelican case, you know, one of those little suitcases where you can carry around your camera. One day, I think we imagine them looking a little more interesting, maybe like a deep ocean fish or something like very cool like that. For now, we're just being practical about keeping them waterproof with one of those cases. The robot actually is not swimming around the wastewater infrastructure. It stays inside the manhole. And it's constantly sipping in a little bit of the wastewater as it comes by. And its objective is to not miss any toilet flush. Because then that way you guarantee that you are getting a representative sample from every person living in that area. And that's what we want. We want to apply a urine or a poop test to everybody who is living in that area. And that's the job of this robot. Now, besides collecting the sample, it's also separating the different types of information present in the wastewater into like the chemical information. Think about medicines that we consume or drugs that are consumed. It also separates it into the biological information like the bacteria or viruses that may be in our bodies. And when it's done, when, when the robot finishes its job, then somebody goes back to retrieve a small cartridge with that information, takes it back to the lab for a molecular analysis and for reporting. 
One day we imagine that that step will also be automated. So we will be able to go full circle from collection to analysis to reporting all remotely. On the data side, there's also a ton of innovation that needs to happen to make all of this new information useful. How do you go from that unstructured data to action? And I think that's also a part where AI and machine learning tools are going to play a big role and where we actually imagine at Biobot the company's future, you know, is going to be there. You know, we hear a lot about just concerns of robots taking jobs from humans. I'm guessing this is not one of these, the, the, the same cases. This is like literally and figuratively dirty work, which I'm guessing uh, humans are happy to let robots do, right? Absolutely. This is a, a type of job where actually it's safer and better for everyone if it's a robot doing it for us. That's a really fascinating specific use of robots. To step back and look at the bigger picture, I talked to Julie Shaw, an artificial intelligence researcher and professor at MIT in the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics. She leads the Interactive Robotics Group, a lab that works on making robots smarter to work well with people. Julie's also the co-author of a new book called What to Expect When You're Expecting Robots. Funny title. I asked her why she wrote that book now. We're at this really interesting, but also kind of critical moment in, um, in AI, in robotics, where um, these robots are uh, sort of breaking free of our factories. They're no longer being used only for doing work that uh, you know, people can't get to physically um, or that's, that's dangerous. They are increasingly being deployed on our streets and our sidewalks. And it's easy to get this wrong. And we know that from our history, our, our decades of work in uh, really honing human interaction with intelligent systems and automation in aviation in aerospace and other sectors. And we have this moment early on to be able to approach you know, how we're developing these systems and how we're deploying them differently so that they can provide maximum value for us. What does she mean by it's easy to get this wrong? Well, it's kind of a garbage in, garbage out scenario, I think. Robots have incredible potential to help us in a lot of ways, but we have to be very intentional about understanding how they interpret our world and designing systems that allow them to succeed. So she makes it sound like we're still early in this process of bringing robots into our world to interact with us. But what is it going to take to move us towards that future? Yeah, interestingly enough, Julie says the robots need to see us as people. You know, the, the robots we work with today, and even you know, the AI systems that we rely on and work with today, they're doing well-defined tasks. They're doing tasks that we've defined for them and structured for them. The vast majority of our work requires us to define the task or you know, for robots, very physically structure the world for them. Robots in factories today, they don't see us really. They don't understand who we are as people. We're uh, really largely just obstacles to them. They navigate by literally following little paper squares across <laughs> the warehouse floor. Like that's what they know of the world to get from point A to point B. This can translate okay to some extent if our conception is of you know continuing to work with robots as tools. 
But the, the real opportunity is to really deploy them as collaborators to allow them uh, to, to enable them to work more interdependently and independently. So that requires you know, two things, two sides of the same coin. One is these robots need to become more capable. They need to understand us as people and sort of our social, uh, our social life, our norms to be able to integrate. But frankly, we also have to change our society, much like we give them little paper squares to follow in the, <laughs> in the warehouse. We need to give them the same breadcrumbs, like in our crosswalks, on our sidewalks, in our grocery stores. So one thing that really struck me, Michal, was um, Julie gave an example of, for instance, her husband recently broke his arm. And if he were in the supermarket and there were robots working there, they would have to understand enough about him and what it meant for him to have a broken arm that they would need to know to make space for him and accommodate him under those circumstances. But back to a theme that we keep returning to. So once we've accomplished that, because we will, does this mean that robots are more likely to take jobs from humans? Well, that's the big question that I think everyone asks about robots. And Julie does believe that robots will take some roles from humans. She wasn't uh, Pollyannish about like, you know, no, there's no threat to human jobs. But she does believe that we have a choice about how we integrate robots into the workforce. We have control of how that's going to work. I think one of my main messages is that, you know, the vision behind my work is to really be intentional about developing computing that enhances human well-being and productivity. Uh, and that's a choice we have. So um, the advances in AI, the advances in robotics are not just sort of marching along without us able to steer them. We have societal drivers, but we also have goals. We have end states we want to see, and we can develop the technology to achieve one versus the other. So on an assembly line, do we want to supplant work or do we want to enhance productivity while making an environment in which a person can work kind of flexibly, they can do their work in slightly different ways? Or do we develop a technology that's um, sort of more rigid, sort of pre-programmed on the robotic side or on the automation side and force a person to work like a robot to gain that productivity benefit? We have these choices, but it requires actually, depending on which path you choose, it requires a different framing of the AI challenge or of the robotics challenge. And that drives investment in a different direction. So we, we have a lot of agency here and we have, we have a choice, on, but we have to develop the technology to realize that, that vision of what we want to see. So we've now heard from a variety of experts, including one of our very own colleagues, on how robots are being used throughout the pandemic and where this is going. And Brian, do you think that we as uh, human beings are doomed. Are robots going to take over our jobs? Are they someday going to take over our podcast? Well, until the robots can learn to do robot voice as well as I do, I don't think they're going to take over the podcast. I also don't think we're doomed, really. I tend to lean more towards um, Julie Shaw's perspective that robots, if developed properly, can be an incredible help to all of us and in a variety of tasks. I don't think it's the Terminator scenario necessarily. Well, I tend to lean toward more of the freak out kind of, you know, point of view, but but we'll see. We got plenty of time. Not for this podcast though. We do need to wrap. So, thanks everyone for listening. We will be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm podcast is a production of Fortune Media. 
Our show is produced by Wyatt Worm and edited by Wyatt Worm and Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. <laughs>